Julia Garner is magnificent as a conflicted staffer to a serial sexual predator in this powerfully muted drama. That's Jeanette Katsoulis of the New York Times talking about her feature review this week, The Assistant, starring the aforementioned Julia Garner from Ozark. The movie came out late January, early February. It's now available on, uh, I believe Amazon Prime, Hulu. It's on Hulu. So I watched it on Hulu, and that's our movie they're reviewing. Also, Joe's got a review of Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga on Netflix. That's starring Will Ferrell, Rachel McAdams, and Piers Brosnan, among others. And obviously, terribly sad news about Chadwick Boseman. Uh, just a just a stunning passing at a guy who you felt like his best work was still yet to come after an already impressive career. Ian Reid is the author, Canadian, of course. I'm thinking of ending things. Charlie Kaufman's new movie. It comes out this week on Netflix. I'm going to talk to Ian about his book, which I loved, read a few years ago. And, of course, Rags Time with Scott Rogowski, in which he looks at all of me, a Steve Martin comedy from the 80s, and a Mount Rushmore of movies about assistance in honor of our featured film. Uh, as always, thank you for the support here on Cinephile. Please go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. You can hit me up on Twitter, Adnan S. Ferk, or Cinephile Pod as well. Uh, I did see a comment, somebody talking about the uh, option on Netflix, the uh, running time, so they don't like it, you know, speeding up the uh, whole idea of it. So I said, okay, that's good. I'm glad people are listening. Glad people are giving feedback. Uh, apologies to Ethan Kleinberg, my uh, tennis partner in arms. Uh, my Oliver Stone, more I thought about, the Mount Rushmore without JFK is absurd. So I'm going to redo that. It is now Platoon, JFK, Any Given Sunday, Natural Born Killers. I just wanted to give Nixon some love because I do think Nixon is underrated. But I hope you all enjoyed the review of Oliver Stone's memoir, as Rob Lemley did, Chasing the Light. You can go check it out in uh, bookstores now. It is an excellent read, and hope you enjoy those excerpts. Hopefully you're enjoying Antkind as well, Charlie Kaufman's book, which uh, I really loved, <laughs> and I love telling you all about it. The Assistant. Follows one day in the life of Jane, Julia Garner, a recent college graduate and aspiring film producer who has recently landed her dream job as a junior assistant to a powerful entertainment mogul. Her day is much like any other assistant's, making coffee, changing the paper in the copy machine, ordering lunch. But as Jane follows her daily routine, she and we grow increasingly aware of the abuse that insidiously colors every aspect of her workday, an accumulation of degradations against which Jane decides to stand, only to discover the true depth of the system into which she has entered. Writer-director Kitty Green. After Harvey Weinstein was taken down as part of the Me Too movement, you said, okay, it's going to be inevitable. There's going to be movies made about this. And although they never name Harvey Weinstein, clearly based on this type of predator, a uh, powerful person in the entertainment industry and obviously a horrible person as well. But much like what Spielberg did with Jaws, in which he did not show the shark until about midway point of the movie, the assistant goes one further and never shows the boss. You just hear his voice as he insults Julia Garner's Jane He's cruel towards her uh, emotional abuse. Emails is vicious, etc. But you never actually see him. And I gotta be honest, it's a short movie, 82 minutes. At first, I thought, I mean, I, I got the essence of it. I mean, the first 30 minutes is as that synopsis read. It's making coffee, it's the copy machine, it's a couple of their male assistants in the room that she works with who seem to have a little more juice than she does. They're making jokes that she's excluded from. They're helping her craft apologies to her boss. <clears throat> There's an actress who comes in who literally treats her like a lamppost, just hands her her jacket and goes in for the audition. And I said, this is all accurate. I'm sure that there are women and assistants treated as such, but I don't exactly understand why this is dramatic fodder. To put it simply, it's awfully boring. But then the story takes a bit of a twist in that a new girl comes in and she's being put up at a really nice fancy hotel and she's being groomed as a new assistant and, you know, 
Jane puts the, puts the two and two together. She's only been with the company for a couple of months because, okay, this is, this is his next prey. Even though she hasn't been advanced upon in a sexual manner, she can see where this is going. Really pretty girl from some rural place in America now get put up in a nice hotel. Like, what, what's going on here? And so the movie, the best scene of the entire film is where she talks to Marcus Misfadian, who Joe and I love from uh, Succession, plays the character of Wilcock, who's the head of HR. And she goes there, and that scene is absolutely brilliant because you can get why she's so scared about bringing to light what she believes are sexual improprieties or at the very least gross misconduct of power and his manner of at least appearing to be kind and gentle, and yet he has no interest whatsoever in actually listening to what she has to say or bringing any sort of recriminations against his and hers boss. And the way he flips from, like I said, a genial presence to somebody who's completely callous and dismissive, it's fantastic acting by him. One scene in the, in the entire movie, and he was tremendous. And Julia Garner is very good in the entire movie. Um, and what I also liked with the film is that normally in a story like this, somebody who's, I don't want to say crusading for justice, but somebody who's awakened to what's happening around them and wants to speak up, well, normally there will be a Hollywood ending in which the sexual predator in question is taken down and there's a courtroom scene perhaps and there's a applause all over the place and this movie is none of that. This has like real independent movie style, Sundance DNA. This is not going to be a happy ending. This is life as it continues and there's a particularly heartbreaking call in which Jane talks to her dad who is completely immune to what's happening and oblivious and just, you know, knows that his daughter's working in some entertainment industry and yeah, it's hard and it's long hours, but don't worry, sweetie, you'll persevere. And, and so often a lot of women had to take this kind of abuse and weren't able to find an answer for it. And so the assistant grew on me. I found the first section, like I said, awfully dry, but the more I thought about it, I couldn't shake it. And I think it's realistic to what's happened and has happened in the entertainment industry. It's a short film. I like the brisk running time at 82 minutes. Once again, it's on Hulu. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. The Assistant, you can watch it and appreciate what so many young women, unfortunately, have gone through here in the entertainment industry. Joe? Uh, and, and I really, really liked it. It's everything that you said. Uh, the way that it, it built, it was... Once, once I kind of got where they were going, I really started to appreciate it. I liked how they didn't show the boss because I thought it implied that it could have been any executive in Hollywood, that he didn't need a face, that it, it kind of just uh, made him this this larger-than-life figure that has overseen so many people and uh, has been this source of abuse for so many people. But you're right, the movie is not uplifting. At the end, not to give too much away, it doesn't... There's no sign of it getting better. It just seems like it's constant resignation throughout the day, and I like how everything is implied. They don't hit you over the head with like this culture of toxic masculinity. They just imply everything. Even that scene where she's with uh, that actor in HR, they're just implying everything. So I really, really liked it. Um, and Julia Gardner, I think she has a big career ahead of her. She was incredible in it. Yeah, much more than just the brassy spitfire that you see on Ozark, who's profane and Ruth is, you know, gun-toting. Here you can see in a much more quieter performance. And uh, resignation is right. There's a real sense of weary resignation to it, which uh, I think resonates with all of us who see it. I turn the floor over to my man, Joe, who watched Will Ferrell's latest movie. It is called Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. It's on Netflix. Tell me all about it. Okay, so Adnan. First, I'll ask you, do you like Will Ferrell? Do you like his shtick? Do you like, you know, him and Anchorman? What, all of that. I like him as a guy. I find I don't often love his movies. If I see him on a talk show, I think he's funny. I see him in clips with people. I'm like, oh, he seems like a good dude. But 
Uh, Anchorman, I like it. I don't love it. Old School, I think, is very funny. But generally, I'm not the first one in line to see a Will Ferrell movie. I never even saw Blades of Glory, whatever the hell it was called. So I'm, I'm kind of on the fence here. You? Well, I, I, I do like his shtick. I don't think he hits all the time. But the way I would describe this movie, which is about uh, two aspiring musicians named Lars and Secret, played by Rachel McAdams and Will Ferrell, uh, they're given the opportunity to represent their country at the world's biggest song competition, Eurovision. It's a real thing in Europe. It's been going on for decades. ABBA won it back in the 1970s. They finally get their chance to prove that their dream is worth having and worth fighting for. So they represent Iceland. And it's everything that you might expect from a movie written by Will Ferrell and Adam Steele. If you like who his characters, his shtick, it's something that you've seen him do a million times before, but it's nothing that's going to hit you over the head, changing the game of comedy. I personally really liked it. I thought it was really funny. There's jokes. The joke, joke per minute ratio is pretty high, I think, and Dan Stevens comes in. He plays kind of the villain. He don't really kind of know who he is. He's from the show called Legion on FX, He's really, really funny in it, but it's just kind of absurd comedy. You know the vehicle that you're driving. It's going to only take you so far, and that is what Eurovision Song Contest is. If I had to give it Maple Leafs, I'd probably give it two and a half out of four Maple Leafs, but I would still recommend it to people if you like Will Ferrell. All right, that's solid. If you're looking for a comedy right now, I appreciate the recommendation. Eurovision Song Contest uh, Rachel McAdams, Demi Lovato, I mean, pretty good cast. Graham Norton as well. So, a couple of reviews. Owen Gleiberman, like a Saturday Night Live sketch, a very thin one, a daffy but leaden, the final third of the show one that's been stretched out for no reason at all to two hours. It's just a, a scathing review there. Another one here. <laughs> uh, Johnny Oleksinski of New York Post, Will Ferrell's is a terribly funny send up and the most enjoyable music industry parody since Christopher Guest's folk satire. A Mighty Wind. Wow, okay, so good review there. I love Mighty Wind, so maybe I'll check that out on Netflix. Once again, Ian Reid's going to join us in just a second, but really sad news here from the entertainment world. That's Chadwick Boseman passing away. Uh, I'm sure like all of you, I had the same reaction, which was, what? Oh, my God, that's so sad. That's tragic. What happened? Oh, I had no idea he had colon cancer, and none of us did because he hadn't told anybody about it, and he'd been quietly battling it since 2016, and then unfortunately, that was stage three when it was diagnosed, uh, then uh, progressed to stage four, and that's why he passed away at the age of 43 years of age. Born and raised in South Carolina, studied directing at Howard University, played a lot of black icons, Thurgood Marshall, uh, James Brown, Jackie Robinson, which is my favorite performance of his, and also known as T'Challa, the first black superhero to headline a film in Black Panther. Regal King of the fictional nation of Wakanda. Was also in Defy Bloods, was also in 21 Bridges, the crime drama, and uh, he had completed filming on the upcoming Netflix film Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is based on August Wilson's play and is expected to be Bozeman's final film appearance. Joe, I'm sure like uh, many of us, you were stunned when you heard of Chadwick Bozeman's passing. Oh, floored, too. And then all the tribute videos from all these little kids uh, all across the country just, like, giving him a memorial. I don't know if you saw that compilation, but my, it had me going, Adnan. It's so sad, so sad. And you think, you know, honestly, he was able to put together such good product in a very brief amount of time, and then you get sad to think, what more greatness could he have given us? And you're right, uh, those kids are being impacted. I mean, this, it's a very challenge right now for parents trying to explain to their kids what happened to the guy from Black Panther. So it's, um, it's very, very sad. And of course, um, he was an excellent actor and a terrific presence, and we wish his family nothing but the best moving forward as they try to find some peace 
amidst the grieving. Time now for Ian Reid, author of I'm Thinking of Ending Things After the Break, plus Rags Time with Scott Rogowski, and the Mount Rushmore of Movies featuring Assistance. As mentioned before, I cannot wait to watch this new Charlie Kaufman film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which is on Netflix this Friday, and I was alerted to it after reading the book, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, by my man Ian Reid, a fellow Canadian, so of course you know I'm going to be in favor of him, but you often wonder, how is it that you find a book? And generally, you know, you need a testimonial, it's an author you like, but sometimes it's as simple as you're just browsing in a bookstore and say, oh, this looks interesting. And that's what it was for me. I looked at the cover of the book and it looks haunting. I'm thinking of ending things. I read the back of it and I said, okay, this seems like something I might enjoy. It looks awfully sinister and dark and there's a psychological twist. Let's give it a shot. Oh, and the guy's Canadian. I'm absolutely in. And I love the book, was floored by it. I tweeted about it. And then Ian Reed, the author, was kind enough to send me a message thanking him. We exchanged DMs. And this is going back a couple of years, but he told me, hey, good news. I know you're a big movie geek. Charlie Coppin's going to adapt my movie. And I said, wow, that's incredible. And sure enough, we we're able to connect now, which I'm thrilled to do. Ian, first and foremost, I, remember, I have this still at the DM here. January 27th, you messaged me, 2018. You were enjoying the college hoops on ESPN. And you said, I know you're a film guy. I just want to let you know some good news about my book. Charlie Coppin is going to do it. Um, how cool was that when you found out, hey, Charlie Coppin, this guy is an auteur. He is a celebrated screenwriter and director, and he was so taken with your work that he wanted to make it into a movie. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was, you know, very surprised, borderline shocked, really, when I, I heard that he had even uh, come across the book. And my agent, the film agent who uh, I was working with, had sent me an email just, you know, telling me that, uh, or asking me if I had a if I'd be able to, you know, have a, a moment to to talk to him, and of course, I I replied immediately saying yes, I could I could talk to him at any any day that that's uh, he's available, and we had a great a great talk, and this was back in 2016, so you know a few years ago now, um, but I, it turned out actually that I think he had a similar um, story to you as far as how he came across the book. Um, I, I thought initially that my agent had sent it to him specifically, but it was actually Amazon that had uh, sort of arbitrarily, or I guess not arbitrarily because it was based on the algorithm, but Amazon had recommended it to him based on his previous purchases. And he, he bought it and ended up reading it. And then he inquired uh, if the rights were still available. So it does feel, you know, knowing that it, uh, and also knowing, you know, coming from Canada and, and, you know, in a, in kind of Ontario, you never, you never really expect your work's going to make it that far into the States or reach someone like him. So it does feel, you know, at this point now, it feels very fortunate and uh, and lucky. Great title and great cover. Tell me about both of those. Yeah, I think the the title, you know, is something that with any any book or anything I'm working on, I, I don't really have it in mind until uh, until I'm done writing. And I think that is similar to just my approach to writing as well, because I, I don't write with an outline. I don't like to have anything planned out before I start. I know that is probably... Um, unlike most writers, I think they like to have that, you know, you're kind of taught to have outlines and really plan and then start writing. But for me, I think you, you end up missing a lot. If you do that, you, you, you miss opportunities to surprise yourself to maybe go places that you, um, that might be better. So I kind of start with just an idea or a few ideas, things that feel 
like something I might get obsessed with for a couple of years because you kind of have to be to write it. You know, you're going to be, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a long, it feels more like a marathon. So I, with this book, I had a couple ideas, things that kind of started back to when I was studying philosophy and things that unsettled me and felt kind of personal and I wanted to write about them. So I just started the story and it wasn't until I was done and actually started working with the editors that the title, which uh, I'm thinking of anything, which is actually the first line of the book, kind of jumped out at me and it felt like that was the only title that would work once I, once I realized that. And, um, and as far as the cover, you know, that's something that the publisher kind of takes the lead on and they have, you know, designers who work on that. Um, and then they end up going through, usually they go through a few different drafts and then they will, once they get, you know, one that they're all happy with, they'll send that to me. And, um, if, if, if there was ever a you know, time where there was something I really didn't like, I think I, I, you know, we'd kind of work through it, but I'm always happy, or at least I always have been so far with, with the books I've, I've published, what they've sent me. Because again, it's like you, you trust the people whose job it is to design it, and, and usually it's something that's a little bit surprising, but it's always fun to see what they come up with. Named as an NPR best book of the year in 2016, I'm thinking of ending things, examines the fragility of the psyche and the limitations of solitude. On a road trip to meet his parents on their secluded farm, Jake's girlfriend is thinking of ending things. When Jake makes an unexpected detour, leaving her stranded, a twisted mix of palpable tension, psychological frailty, and sheer terror ensues. That should be enough for anyone to want to read this book and then watch the movie. There's an incredible twist in the book, Ian. I don't want to give anything away, but I mean, how did you come to that? How much work was it? Like you said, it's an immersive, obsessive process. But when you found out how you wanted to end it, was that a eureka moment? Oh, thank you. Uh, you know, I, not really, actually. It's, it's uh, And again, I, I think because it, it, it kind of, it, it didn't happen just sort of in one moment. It kind of... You know, often when I'm writing and working on a book, I'm trying different things, um, even, you know, thinking about narration and the tenses and all that stuff. You're, you know, I'm constantly kind of tweaking and trying different stuff, especially at the, the beginning. And then as I start writing and the story starts to emerge, um, I get caught up in certain aspects of it. And so it's funny because, yeah, you know, to me, as I was working on it and even sort of, I think, with the finished product, I, I, I was never focused on kind of... Um, you know, trying to have a twist ending or, and I know a lot of people um, who have responded to the book uh, one way or the other, that's something they, they talk about. And, and so I like that because, you know, another aspect I think that is similar to the, to the movie is not really wanting to feel like there's any one particular way that you're supposed to interpret it. And, um, you know, I think I, I like that. I, I, I want people to interpret it however, however they want, you know, I, I want readers to, to come to the book and, and bring their own experience and their own bias and, and read it. And then if they take the time to read it, I feel like they have, you know, just as much authority on what the book is about and what it means as I do. And that's another reason why I don't like to kind of say what it means for me or what, you know, what the ending means for me or, uh, because then I, I, I my fear is that, uh, other people or readers will think they're supposed to think the same as me. And I, you know, then, if that's the case, then it, it sort of feels like, you know, what's the point? Why would I even write it? But I, I love the idea that people will come to it, read it, and uh, and then come up with their own ideas about what it and the end uh, mean. Yeah. And with all great books, you bring your own uh, biases, your background, your taste, all of it to the table. And you're right. As I messaged you, I said, 
I know I was born in Toronto, but I grew up in a small town. We were in Kingston for a few years. Then I was in Morvan, Ontario, population 500. We were the closest to Napanee, population 5,000. And I said, this kind of a story. I mean, I, I, I felt that wintry solitude, <laughs> you know what I mean, in eastern Ontario. I said, and, and I could therefore relate to that book. So I think no matter who you are, like you said, you bring your own um, preferences and tendencies and, and your own perspective to it. Was there any hesitation when Kaufman said he was going to do it? You know, he previously adapted Susan Orlean's The Orchid Thief, which he then made Adaptation, which is one of the best films of the last 20 years. Was there any hesitation? Because, of course, rather than adapting the book, he made a movie about how the book was unadaptable and it was that long, flowery New Yorker shit, and I can't do this, so I'm going to make a movie about a screenwriter struggling to make an adaptation. Did you have any concerns that he might take your book and do something crazy with it? Well, I mean, I also love adaptation. It's yeah, I think it's it's brilliant. And but you know, there was really no hesitation. I, I had seen all of Charlie's films, and then having talked to him, you know, before even it was official, and before Netflix kind of came on, um, and even at that point, after having talked to him, I, I just I, I felt very comfortable in his approach and his um, the way he works. And I, you know, I know for him, he just tries to write and make movies that are crucial for him and that are honest and and they're always provocative and and and, you know different and so i i i didn't know what the result was going to be and uh i liked that to me that was kind of thrilling i I trusted him i i i was a you know a fan and an admirer of his work and so what i really wanted to do more than anything was uh i wanted him to feel the full freedom to do really whatever he wanted. And I, it was nice and, and fortunate that they, uh, you know, Charlie Netflix, that they allowed me to kind of be part of the process. And, um, and that is how I felt. I, I wanted to be there in case he wanted to talk about the book or, um, but otherwise I just, I just wanted to not get in the way and, and not, I didn't want him to ever feel like he had to, that he owed anything to the book or um, that just to do, you know, to tr- trust his instincts, and uh, if he wanted to talk about it at all, I'd be here to do that. But otherwise, I just wanted to kind of let him do his thing, and, and I think he did. Uh, did you get a chance to watch the movie? And what did you think? Is it a faithful adaptation of what you uh, had rendered on the page? I have seen it, and uh, they sent me, Netflix sent me, the, there was supposed to be you know, a screening for the cast and crew you know, before it came out in New York. Um, obviously, that was, was canceled, and so they just ended up sending me a link. Um, which I watched at my place, which in some ways was fitting because this is where I wrote the book. So it felt like it kind of came full circle. I, I popped a bowl of popcorn, uh, you know, sat down on my on my bed and, and watched it. And then I immediately uh, rewatched it. I watched it back to back. And I love it. I think it's it's brilliant. You know, I'd read the script, um, which I really liked. And I'd been to the shoot, and you know, for to see some of the filming. So I was aware and I kind of knew what to expect. But um, it's really unlike anything I've ever seen. Um, it feels like its own thing. You know, it's obviously very much connected to the book. Um, they feel like siblings or something, you know, um, but it's, it's, it, it, it also, I think both, both the book and the film stand alone. Um, but definitely it kind of, for me was what I hoped it would be when Charlie set it to do it, which is, um, sort of unclassifiable. It's, it's funny at times. It's sad. I found it moving. Uh, it's provocative. And I just, like the book, you know, the book is about questions, I think, more than anything. And I kind of think the movie's like that, too. I think it, it kind of poses a series of questions. And, and hopefully people will be thinking about it and talking about it. And I think it'll, there's going to be a wide range of reaction. And, and to me, that's always, uh, that's always exciting. 
Can't wait to see it. I'm think, uh, thinking of ending things on Netflix this Friday, but please, I encourage everyone, read the book by Ian Reid first and then watch the movie. It sounds like a, a faithful rendering with something that's also unique and original, so I, I cannot wait to see it. Before I let you go, as a Canadian author, I am often uh, amused at times here living in, in America for 10 years now. You know, I'll make Canadian references, and there's, of course, the obvious ones we can make, you know, Tim Hortons and Swiss Chalet and, you know, Coffee Crisp, that kind of thing. But on a more serious level, when it comes to literature, like, you know, people will, will know Margaret Atwood, perhaps, but if I quote, like, Robertson Davies, yeah. Fifth Business, like, nobody has any idea what I'm talking about. And I think that's one of the great books I read when I was in high school sure. growing up in Ontario. Is there, like, a couple of Canadian authors or books that you feel like you wish had gotten more play in America, or are there a couple that you feel like are, are generally well-recognized and you're happy to see that at least stateside? I mean, you know, yeah, I think instead of, instead of you know, any specific one coming to mind, I think what's really um, exciting now in, in Canadian literature from my perspective is just the amount of young, uh, you know, up-and-coming, diverse uh, authors that are getting opportunities to be writing and, and getting their work out there now. Um, which is really, I think, both important and, and just as a reader, what you want to get, you know, a variety of different perspectives and, and different types of, of, of writing and different styles. And, and it's just happening more and more now. Publishers are making uh, that, um, that a priority to be, to be hearing from different voices. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a fan of that as a reader. I like that. So I would just, I would, I would kind of encourage people to um, just, you know, check, check out a variety of different, you go to, go to the publisher's websites and check out what they're kind of publishing um, now and, and what's coming out this fall. Cause there's always lots of new stuff coming. And, and I think that's a good way to do it. It's almost like a virtual book bookstore. You can just kind of go and peruse and, and um, there's lots of, lots of new and exciting stuff coming out. That's awesome. And that's very generous of you to kind of pass the baton to other Canadian authors. Where can people get your work Ian? what's the easiest way to buy? I'm thinking of ending things or any of the other books that you've written. You know, I think, uh, you know, Amazon online, obviously, if you have, you know, independent bookstores where you live, that's always nice to support them. Um, usually now they're, they can order any book in for you if they don't have it. Um, and you can just go to the, my publisher, Simon and & Schuster, and, uh, you know, their, their website will direct you to, to get it. And, of course, I'm always appreciative of anybody who takes the time to read it. The library is another good spot to get it. Um, but, if yeah, if anybody reads it and thinks about it, talks about it, you know, I never, I never really expected that to happen. So I, I really do appreciate it. And, and like you, I really, uh, you know, grateful that you took the time to read it as well. So thank you. Uh, thank you for the support. No, of course, man. And, and you know my work from when I was in Toronto. You know my friend, Cabby. I was texting Cabby yeah. yesterday, of course, my dear friend who's now in Vegas. And he said he was actually going to the library. And I said, you know, I used to get mocked at when we were at the score for the fact I used to go to the library and get books. So I'm glad that you are also uh, giving me some respect here in terms of going to the library. Some people think it's a lost start, but I'm like, my dad used to always go to the library. Yeah. And now it's harder with kids. But where else can you actually go and be immersed in books and do some reading? I mean, I love going to the library. Oh, yeah. I use it. I still, I'm at the library. Uh, near where I live, my local library, at least once a week, you know, getting two, three books out. So I, I think if, if people, um, you know, I've had people sort of apologize to me before saying, oh, I'm sorry, I got up the line. And I think, no, that's great. Please support the library. So, no, but, you know, you mentioned your days back in Toronto. I, yeah, I've been, I've been watching you for a long time. And uh, because I'm also obviously uh, watch a lot of hoops. And, and uh, so, yeah, it's, it's great to see what you're doing these days as well and, and just following you from afar. 
Oh, that's so nice of you, man. You can follow Ian Reed on Twitter at Reed, R-E-I-D underscore Ian, I-A-I-N. I'm thinking of ending things on Netflix this Friday. Congrats on a tremendous book. Like I told you, I was floored when I read it, and I cannot wait to watch the movie, and I really appreciate the time, man. All the best. Thanks a lot, Adnan. It's uh, great to talk to you, and uh, yeah, stay well. Ready, guys and gals, it's time for Rags Time with Scott Rogowski. All right, now it's time for Rags Time. People are loving this segment. You can follow Scott Rogowski on Twitter and Instagram at Scott Rogowski. Swingers was a big hit from last week. People are just, I mean, it's the impact of Cinephile and Rags in particular. I mean, Swingers right now, it's off the charts in terms of streaming and Amazon Prime. So I think, I think honestly, Doug Lyman and John Favreau owe you something for giving some love to swingers last week. Yeah, they're the big winners, baby. Thanks to uh, my, my plugging, of course. No, look, uh, I, I think I'm having a negligible impact on the world with, with Rack's time, but I did get a tweet this week, Adnan, from Commander Frank, who, who suggested I check out some Soviet uh, film <laughs> on Criterion. So I guess there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a Soviet mo- filmmaking movement that I'm uh, Sergei with. Eisenstein is a great Soviet filmmaker. Sure. Battleship Potemkin, of course. Battleship yeah. Potemkin, that's probably the only one I've seen. Yeah. Uh, Russian arc. Does that count? Oh my God. Russian one shot. I mean, it's, it's, I gotta be honest. This is an unpopular <laughs> opinion. It's one of those movies. that's incredibly boring. I mean, art house people love it. Cause they go, Oh my God, it's one shot. And then you watch 20 minutes you go, Holy shit. What is this? It's just a, it's just a Russian museum. It's an art film for like 90 minutes. Like, yes, it's a technical Marvel, but I have no interest in ever watching that again. Yeah, that's a good debate to have. I mean, what makes a good film? Is it the technicality? Is it just the fact, you know, Andy Warhol's films? Do you think those are great? Four hours of meat eating a sandwich or no, Empire State no, Building? But no, it, it's no. art, right? And it's, yeah. it's considered critically adored and beloved. But now we, we like the we like the Black Panthers of the world, right? R.I.P. Of course, Chadwick mm-hmm. Boseman need to need to shout him out this week. Uh, tough week, Cliff Robinson for basketball yeah. fans out there. Former Blazer, not a basketball podcast, admittedly, but. Uh, I'm sure he was a movie fan as well. And uh, Adnan, I, I want to talk about. Well, first, I want to give give a, give a, another shout out to one of our favorites here, Peter Falk. Oh yeah. And, and, and a joke I heard this week that uh, that apparently is a very old joke dating to the '80s in Boston radio circles. But they they ran a promo. I think Billy West actually was the voice of Peter Falk. You know, Billy West, great voiceover impersonator, voice of uh, Futurama, Fry, and Ren and Stimpy. And in the 80s, he was working morning radio in Boston. And they did a little sketch where Peter Falk was visiting the western Massachusetts town of Athol, Massachusetts. And, and, you, and if you put them together, you can catch Falk and Athol. <laughs> so that was... I love that this is like an old school joke that you're bringing back because I also never heard the joke. And now I'm going to tell everybody I know about this joke, Athol. It's a 35-year-old joke that I heard this week, and I thought I'd bring it to Rags Time and you, Adnan, because fucking Athol (laughs) is uh, something we can all appreciate here on Cinephile. But um, it's time to appreciate another great actor and comedian of our time. That's Steve Martin, Adnan. You know, Steve Martin celebrated his 75th birthday just a couple weeks ago. Looks great for 75. Doesn't he? He's always had the prematurely white hair, but like right. not overweight at all. Still, st- him and Martin Short, great comedy duo. He's looked seventy five for the last thirty years, kind of. But, <laughs> but Sean McCarthy in the New York Times gave him some props in the Weekend Roundup uh, and, and recommended his films. You know, acknowledging that it's both wild and crazy how the big streamers don't have some of his most memorable performances, like The Jerk, 
which mm. of course I've seen several times. I'm sure you have too. I was um, born a poor black man. Yes, Nathan Johnson. <laughs> one of the best opening lines in any movie. <laughs> but Sean mentioned another Steve Martin movie, All of Me, mm. uh, which I had I never heard of, Frank. I only knew it as the uh, John Legend song that horribly overplayed sappy John Legend song. But uh, All of Me, it is found on HBO Max. And thanks to my friends, Mike and Sarah, I'm now a proud HBO Max moocher. Wow. So I decided to give this a shot. All of me didn't know much about it. It was Steve Martin, Lily Tomlin, Carl Reiner directing the late great Carl Reiner. Um, it's one of those movies. Have you seen it, by the way? All of I me? haven't seen it. I'm aware of it. 1984, a romantic comedy. I mean, I, I'm vaguely aware of it. I mean, I've seen Roxanne, so I know that Steve Martin era, but I've never seen all of me. Right. Yeah. And it falls into that very specific hybrid category of like fantasy romantic comedy with, uh, I guess you can count titles like Heaven Can Wait, Big. Groundhog Day, Liar Liar, even being John Malkovich you can throw into there, you know, as, as that fantasy romantic comedy. But this one throws in a lot more of that screwball slapstick feeling that you get from the 1930s and 40s comedies, which makes sense when you consider, you know, Reiner came of age in that era, uh, the director. And, and look, no actor in 1984 was better suited for this zany, gender-bending role than Steve Martin, who plays a dissatisfied lawyer, aspiring jazz guitarist. We meet him on his 38th birthday, and it struck me close to home, and as I approach my 36th birthday, he delivers a great line. He goes, happy 38th birthday. That's a contradiction in terms. And, you know, and there's another great early line when he, when he tells his boss at the, at, at the firm, the law firm, that he's quitting music to focus full-time on his legal career, saying, later today, I'm going to buy a vest. <laughs> it's just a very it's a good line good line the way he delivers it to the, the the deadpan and just the seriousness of it the screenplay incidentally is by phil alden robinson do you know him oh yeah feel the dreams i love yes. Phil Alden robinson yeah, yes yeah. he wrote and directed feel the dreams sneakers robert mm. Redford, and the sum of all fears also directed the first episode of band and brothers if wow. you can believe it so you got the, yeah the guy covers the gamut runs the uh the gauntlet of of genres but um so martin's character this lawyer right typical story you know he's kind of bummed out by his career he's assigned to manage the estate of this eccentric millionaires played by lily tomlin she's been sickly wheelchair bound her entire life bedridden never made any friends but she's incredibly wealthy and she's on death's door she's hatched a plan to transfer her soul into the body of the young attractive daughter of her stable hand so she can finally and fully enjoy a life without limitations one of my favorite character actors, Richard Libertini, plays the Tibetan mystic oh, yeah. who's going to deliver the soul trance. Richard Libertini, Fletch. I love him in Fletch as his boss. Um, so the soul transfer, it kind of works to a point. The soul of Lily Tomlin goes into this brass bowl, but the bowl gets knocked out the window. Of course, it hits Steve Martin on the head. And voila, end of act one, we have a movie, baby. So now Steve Martin has the soul of this old, this like, you know, Lily Tomlin, and he's playing this kind of like, split personality i mean you can't come up with a zanier more contrived premise but it definitely serves the purpose which is to watch steve martin and lily tomlin metaphysically fight it out over their shared body martin's controlling the left side tomlin's controlling the right side his body essentially becomes a battlefield for the battle of the sexes uh and, and disclaimer and if you're offended by outdated gender norms this is not the movie for you because he's you know swishing around speaking in a high-pitched voice but if you appreciate physical comedy, it's an absolute must watch, especially that initial possession scene where the simple act of walking when you're trying to coordinate the feminine and masculine sides lends itself to just supreme contortionism and mime work that really only, I think, Steve Martin, Jim Carrey, and Robin Williams could pull off. I mean, so this is Marx Brothers level physical comedy. And 
Some of the funniest scenes to me are in the bedroom, right? As, as so you got Steve Martin with Lily Tomlin inside his head. You hear the voiceovers. He's attempting to sleep with that attractive young woman who was supposed to receive Tomlin's soul. And, and Tomlin, who is like a virgin, a proud virgin, and she doesn't want to be involved in sex. So she's providing all this boner killing imagery. Oh, she's geez. like, I'm thinking of very old nuns. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Steve Martin can't get up. He's like, oh, great. Now she's thinking of dead kittens. Yeah, but so like Lily Tomlin's character, they're like in the bathroom having this like one on one in the mirror because that's really when you can see Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin interact is when he's looking in the mirror and and the viewer, the movie viewer sees Lily Tomlin's reflection, so it's a nice device. So we see, uh, you know, both sides, and she goes, "What's so important about sex?" And Steve Martin goes, "That's like asking what's so important about laughing." Duke Ellington, the World Series, <laughs> and of course, I thought of our great Carpy and Crane, a day without sex. A day wasted. wasted. (laughs) Oh, that's tremendous. I love it. All of me on HBO Max. It sounds hilarious. Yeah, yeah. There's another great uh, bedroom scene with more born to kill imagery. But this time, so this time later on, later on, like Lily Tomlin, she's warming to the concept of sex, right? So Martin's in bed with the girl again. This time, Tomlin's thinking of Clark Gable taking his shirt off, which to the heterosexual male, yeah, that's still. Uh, no-go territory but martin tries to make it work he's like uh throw some naked women on top of him <laughs> and then maybe the best line of the whole movie he's like you know trying to have sex he's like she's got the whole cast of gone with the wind humping in my head <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i i look i mean it's that's it's, great i recommend seeing this movie it's 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 one it's it's definitely a little outdated in some ways but um you know I think Vincent D'Onofrio definitely watched it because he must have took inspiration from this courtroom scene when, like, Steve Martin fell asleep, Lily Tomlin's soul is, like, controlling his body and his voice, and she's, you know, doing this impression of a man. So you're seeing Steve Martin, a man, impersonating a woman who's impersonating a man, which is a great moment. But that voice that comes out, it sounds like D'Onofrio in Men in Black, Edgar the Bug. Give me sugar. Sugar water. So I, I, I want to ask Vincent D'Onofrio, if you ever have him on the show, Adnan, ask him if he took his inspiration for his Edgar the Bug voice from <laughs> Steve Martin as Lily Tomlin impersonating Steve Martin. But to wrap up Rack's time this week, this this movie really got me thinking, Adnan, of my own zany premises for movies. Because, you know, like I said, this genre has been around for a while. We don't see it that much these days, mm-hmm. right? Like it it seems a little antiquated to kind of like, I don't know, click with Adam Sandler, another one of those movies where you take it's almost like supernatural, right? And the character is like, what's going on? I'm, you know, some crazy thing happens. He has to deal with in the real world. It's, it's not, you know, fantasy in the sense like Princess Bride fantasy. Right. But it's it's real world with some, you know, metaphysical supernatural thing going on. Or just a, a really zany point. Well, I, I love that whole idea. Remember 80s, you're right, that era of like switching bodies. Like like father, like son, 18 again. Right. George Burns. Like, you're right. It's, it's or, definitely. Or man, mannequin, you know. Yeah. I mean, you just think it's like, what? Could that really happen? You know, but, but, but. but I, I wanted to pitch my idea to you. I wanted to. Okay. I want to start pitching my own movies. I'm tired of watching and reviewing movies. I want to pitch my own because I'm a creative guy. So yeah. I thought of a movie, and I want to. I want to hear your thoughts on this. Ready? Here's my here's my wacky premise for a movie. A mad climate scientist is convinced that the Earth will be flooded over in 50 years due to the melting ice caps and the rising ocean levels. Humanity is going to be doomed unless he can breed a race of super swimmers. Right essentially human fish who will be genetically prepared for the impending water world. I mean, think Kevin Costner's water world coming yeah. to life, right? Except so his, not a gigantic bomb. Okay. Not, right. Not, not, a, not a leap, really. So mm-hmm. here's his plan. Kidnap Michael Phelps and force him 
to f- thousands of chicks. <laughs> so, you know, at first Phelps is terrified of being taken hostage, but when he learns of the scientist's plan, he quickly gets on board. <laughs> There's a 45-minute Wedding Crashers-like montage of Phelps tumbling into bed with all kinds of topless women. Right. The conflict that drives the plot is that he must find women who aren't on birth control, which is not so easy in these modern times. And the comedy comes from how he outsmarts those who insist he use protection. There's also a 15-minute montage of him poking holes in thousands of condoms. Oh, jeez. The, the movie... The movie a 15-minute montage, but go ahead. He's just sitting there with a with a needle. Just poking away. All right. This will work. But there's like, a couple swimmers in there's there. There's jazzy, uplifting music. <laughs> sure, it's a good <laughs> Build me up buttercup is playing the whole time. Okay, go ahead. All right. The movie ends on an ironic note when we fast forward 50 years, and it turns out the scientist was right. The world is underwater, but none of these Phelps kids have inherited his swimming gene. Instead, they all got the stoner gene. And we learn, yeah, Michael Phelps' stoner gene. And we learn in a closing voiceover that their collective bong rips only expedited the climate change. So the moral of the story is that kidnapping Olympic swimmers and forcing them to have sex won't save the planet. My my favorite part of it is... Phelps is kidnapped and he's terrified. But when she finds out what the plot is, he's immediately on board. Like that's, that's the best part. He's locked in the trunk going, I'm going to kill someone. Like, I don't care. I'm like, I'm gonna, I, wait, wait. Once you have sex with thousands of women, I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think Phelps would love to play himself too because right. you know he's done it before in Entourage and Suits with some cameos. Mm-hmm. He hosted SNL once. Admittedly, he was pretty bad at it. But I, I think that's, you know, it's been 12 years since then. I think his acting chops have gotten up. And hey, maybe this becomes a porno. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know what how many listeners are uh, in the adult film industry, but if you're listening and if you have a producer with some money, uh, hit up Scott Rogowski. Ask Scott Rogowski on Twitter and Instagram. Maybe we can make this idea happen. If you throw enough money at Michael Phelps, I mean, I think he'd be into this because, like you said, who doesn't want to embrace this part of themselves? Uh, and it looks like it'd be a lot of fun for him. Yeah. yeah. Great episode of Rags Time. All of me, once again, on HBO Max. I like it. 80s comedy that's not a dated comedy. My, here's one of my issues, by the way, with the 80s comedies. Music is always terrible. Is the music particularly atrocious? Now, you know what? You're going to love it because the film, before John Legend wrote All of Me, there was a 1931 sort of jazz uh, song. Like a Cole Porter type song. Right. Yeah. Cole, right. All of me, right? And and, and that, that's sort of what the movie takes its title from. So the opening scene, frankly, and a lot throughout the movie, you hear this jazz music, okay, 30s music. And the, and you know, we also, we, we don't see in movies much anymore. The opening title sequence is incorporated into the movie. It's kind of yeah. setting up the character. And you see Steve Martin. It's basically like a, a set piece for Steve to do these little sketches. And, you know, he goes, there's a great moment where, in the titles. Remember, there's a music playing. You know, the, the, the all of me is playing. And Steve Martin, like, leaves his law firm desk. He's like, he checks his watch. He's like, oh, I'm late. The next scene is he's like walking into a jazz club. He runs on stage, grabs his guitar and hits the solo. He's playing jazz solo. So, I mean, you know, these are nice little touches of Carl, of course, Carl Reiner, Steve Martin together coming up with these things. I, I wish movies today played more with those uh, opening credits the way that they used to. Yeah, you're right. Now they do it at the end of the movie. And you go, wait, before it was actually kind of a signifier of what was to come and it was incorporated into the film. And now it's, it's kind of a bygone era. Rags time. Great stuff, man. I love it. We'll talk to you again soon. Uh, you got it, my man.
Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore of movies about assistants. So in honor of the assistant, I said, you know, there's been a lot of movies in which there have been assistants of note over the years. Out of the gate, I got to go with 2001 of Space Odyssey. Hal, who's also could make a case one of the great villains of all time, but as an assistant, Dave, who uh, clearly has some other options than what the astronauts think he's up to. Hal 9000, a great assistant and a great villain. Another great assistant, Aladdin, Genie, Robin Williams, indelible performance, Will Smith, also very good in the live action role. I mean, just nonstop comedy. And honestly, where else can you find a friend like me? Those are two that I'm going to put in there right away. After that, another comedy. I'm going to go with Young Frankenstein. How about Igor? No, it's Igor. What happened to your hump? What do you mean? What hump? I mean, one of the funniest movies from Mel Brooks. I think Blazing Saddles is his funniest movie, but Young Frankenstein, a lot of laugh per minutes. Peter Boyle, tremendous. Gene Wilder, even Gene Hackman cameo is very good. So my assistants right now are 2001 A Space Odyssey, Aladdin, and Young Frankenstein. I want to throw in Secretary, but I've never actually seen it. James Spader, S&M movie, looked very funny. Uh, I'll go with Swimming with Sharks, the character of Guy. That's right, Kevin Spacey. Because when I was watching The Assistant, I kept thinking, I haven't seen a movie really about you know Hollywood and an evil, terrible person like this since I saw Kevin Spacey in that movie. Frank Whaley, I believe, was the assistant who played the character of Guy. So Swimming with Sharks is my fourth choice when it comes to movies featuring very memorable assistants. I don't know where Joe's going to go with this. The Master is a good one. Freddie Quill, The Matrix, and Tank. I mean, lots of good options when it comes to assistants. Green Book. I mean, Tony Lip, Viggo Mortensen. He's the assistant to Marshall's character. That also counts. So, Joe, go ahead. Floor is yours. All right. Well, I'm going to get the devil's wear, the devil wears Prada out of the way, Anne Hathaway, Meryl Streep, um, and that whole world that they create. And then I'm going to agree with you on 2001 A Space Odyssey, Hal, Stanley Kubrick, so memorable. And then I'm going to throw, uh, you know what? I'm going to go Despicable Me, 2010, nice. and I'll go with all the minions, all the minions that help him. And that leaves me with, this might be a curveball, but I'm going to go with Psycho. Wow. And I'm going to go with Marion Crane, even though she, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, people, but even though she's murdered halfway through the movie, she takes the money. She she sets up the whole the whole rest of the movie. I will go with Psycho, 2001 Space Odyssey, Despicable Me, and The Devil Wears Prada. Love that you ran the gamut. I mean, that's that's a lot of range there in your Mount Rushmore. Any mention of Hitchcock, Thank Psycho, you. I'm in favor of. Yeah, and Minions. I mean, Minions very popular here in the Verk household. Uh, Bob is terrific. Stewart is very good. I like the I like the Minions a lot. They're very very funny. All right. Thank you so much for checking out. This episode of Cinephile, once again, go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. As always, you can comment or throw a question at me, Adnan S. Ferk or Cinephile Pod. Big news, I'm going to go see Tenet this weekend. The theaters are opening in New Jersey this Friday, so I've got Saturday off, and boom. Cannot wait to watch Christopher Nolan's masterpiece. That will be reviewed next week. I hope it's a masterpiece. Next week on Cinephile Plus, Charlie Kaufman's new film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, this Friday on Netflix. Hope to catch that as well. So lots coming up here on Cinephile. I feel like we've we've gotten through what's been a very tough summer and lots of great movies coming up this fall. So please do spread the word when it comes here to Cinephile, and I'll see you at the movies.